Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, our cornerstone, the one upon which we build our lives, the one that we can run to even when everything else in our lives is going crazy. Lord, and we come to you today, and we give you praise and honor and glory, and you deserve all of it. You deserve everything we can give. We pray that as we open your word today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would help us to know what it means to follow you more passionately devoted. And Lord, you would give us the strength and the courage to do exactly that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you today, I'm going to ask you to turn to two different places, and I'll explain that in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 16. We're going to start there, and then we'll go to 1 Peter, where we've been for the last few weeks. Um, I do want to say, again, a special uh, thank you to our moms out there, and also to a few people that helped to pull off something yesterday for the moms in our congregation. Um, yesterday, we tried to honor the moms in our congregation through a special delivery that happened, and I want to just say thank you, first of all, to our uh, life group leaders that helped us to get that list together, to coordinate that list, and make sure that names were on that list that needed to be on that list, so thank you to our life group leaders, our staff um, and creative team that came together and came up with the idea and formulated the plan and got all of that together, and so thank you to, to those people, to Laura and Delaney Stevens, who baked the cookies um, that were as a part of that gift, thank you so much for that delicious cookies that you were able to bake for uh, to honor our moms. And then I want to say a special thank you to somebody that you've seen already this morning, um, to Jeff Kelly. Jeff Kelly um, was the one that made sure all of that came together, mapped out routes, assigned delivery drivers, got all the things put together. Um, and Jeff did a great job getting that all together. And so I just want to say thank you publicly to um, all of those people that helped to make yesterday happen. And we hope that it was a way that you felt honored as a mom. Now, I read a story this week um, about uh, maybe you remember a time like this when people were having church and people were actually coming and sitting in the pews. And I read a story this week about a time when a lady came to visit a church. She met an usher out in the hallway, and she said to the usher, I'm excited about the service today. Can you take me down to the front row? And the usher said, well, ma'am, I'll be glad to take you to the front row, but I just want to tell you something. And he kind of leaned in and whispered this so other people might not be able to hear. He said, that might not be the best idea. He said, our pastor has been known to put people to sleep with his sermon." And it would be embarrassing for you if you fell asleep on the very front row. The woman looked indignant and said, Sir, do you know who I am? And the man looked back at her and says, No, ma'am, I do not. And she said, I am the pastor's mother. The man, Usher, obviously felt embarrassed. His face kind of sank for a minute and then he thought of a question. And he looked back and said, ma'am, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. He said, do you know who I am? And she said, I do not know. And he said, thank the Lord. And he walked away. 
Anonymity sometimes is a good thing. Not being known sometimes is a good thing. But there's an area of our lives where we cannot remain anonymous. And that is whether or not we have built our lives on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Here's what I want to do today. This is not your typical Mother's Day sermon. It's going to be for everyone listening. It's not going to be directed at mothers. It's not going to be attempted to just go towards mothers. It's going to be for all of us. And this is the question I want us to kind of wrestle with, deal with is, what is the foundation that which would be built our lives? And, and how do we know that? And what does it look like? And then we're going to get to 1 Peter chapter 2 in just a moment. But I want to read first out of Matthew chapter 16. Because in Matthew chapter 16, we have the foundational passage for 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, just a reminder to you, we're going to read this story in a moment. It's a familiar story for many people that have been a part of a church. If you've grown up in Sunday school or you've grown up in church, you're going to know this story. But just a reminder that Peter that wrote 1 Peter wasn't always Peter. That when Jesus met him, his name was Simon. And we're going to read the story about how his name was changed and then relate that to what's happening in 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles open or you've got your apps open to that, look with me at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, just a couple of important notes here as you're thinking about this story for us to get our minds around it. Caesarea Philippi was actually a Roman city, but it was within the borders of Israel. And it was located in this beautiful spot near a natural spring. And one of the main features of Caesarea Philippi was that there was this huge rock face wall. And on that, around that huge rock face wall or through it and with it, the Romans had built temple after temple after temple to God after God after God. And so literally as they're looking at Caesarea Philippi, the one outstanding feature would have been this rock wall, this huge wall that would have had temple after temple on it. And in fact, in Jesus' time, the latest temple to have been built was built in um, deverence or in a relationship to Caesar himself. It was for Caesar to honor him and inscribed on that this is just fascinating because of we know who the true ones of these are inscribed on that temple to Caesar were titles of him such as son of God king of kings and lord of lords so we have in that moment they're standing there overlooking it and Jesus says as they're looking at these temples to all of these gods to all of these false gods Jesus says who do people say the son of man that's him is. And they replied, Jesus had developed a reputation, a miracle worker, a great teacher, someone that had been followed by large crowds, large groups of people. In fact, this is not this is towards the back half of Matthew when we're moving towards that last week of his life. And so there had been a built a reputation had been built up over time there. And they say some say John the Baptist, that you're just like him, that his cousin, or Elijah's, or others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They say, you're one of the prophets that's come back, or the spirit of the prophet is within you. You're like them. And then Jesus turned to them, and this is when the anonymity is taken away. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? 
Now, if I was just preaching this passage alone today, if we were just looking at this passage by itself, we would spend an inordinate amount of time probably talking about that question that every person must answer. But it is still true that the baseline question that every human being on the planet, every person that has ever lived, every person that is living today must answer is, who do you say that Jesus is? Because if Jesus is who he claims that he is, then you will be changed forever by following him. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you will be changed forever by not following him as well. It is the most important question that you can deal with in your life. And he turns to his disciples after they have spent time with him. They have watched him do miracles. They have heard him teach. And he says, who do you say that I am? Let's take everybody else out of the equation. Don't worry about what they're saying on TV. Don't worry what the documentaries are saying. Don't worry about what your preacher is saying. Don't worry about what your Sunday school teacher is saying. Don't worry about your neighbor next door is saying. Who do you say that I am? And Simon, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one for whom we have been waiting and the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are no longer Simon, that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I say this to you, Simon, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. There's some wordplay going on there. Petros and Petra. There's this idea that you are a rock now, Peter. That you are the one that I'm going to build the, the, the church that I'm going to build on the confession of this. Lots of, lots of theological debate about this particular line in this particular verse for centuries. But here's my understanding of it. He's talking about Peter's confession. He's talking about the reality of what God is doing in the midst of this. And he says, you are going to be, because of this confession, yes, I'm going to use you and the apostles to build my church. But it's not going to be built on you. It's not going to be built on human beings. It's not going to be built on primarily individuals. It's going to be built on the confession of the realization of who I am. So the main point of this story is this, that you and I must build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ as Lord, on the confession in our lives of Jesus Christ as Lord. Build your life on the foundation of confessing Jesus as Lord. But that brings up a question. So what does that look like? What is that confession? How does that impact us? What are the implications with that? What does it look like to build my life on that? Turn with me to second or excuse me to first Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Simon renamed Peter. 
is the one that is writing this, the one that would become the leader of the early church, the one that would stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach the first sermon, ask for salvation in that moment, people to respond to salvation, and 3,000 would come. Peter, who would be persecuted for his faith. Peter, who would be, um, would be killed for his faith eventually, writes this to a group of people that feel rejected and alone and distanced because of their faith in Jesus. First Peter chapter 2 starts in verse 4 with this. This is what it means to confess Him as Lord. As you come to Him. So this is after He says, this is after you desire the milk we talked about last week, after you have tasted and seen what the Lord it is. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's what I want to just be real honest with you about this particular passage of Scripture. There is lots of theology and technical terms woven throughout this. And what I want to do is to take it and boil it down. Okay, so what does it look like? Peter, the rock, talks about building upon the rock of the confession of Christ. What does that rock look like when he writes about it in First Peter? And I want to try to give it just a, a crystal clear understanding of what that looks like. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is the living stone on which we build our lives and the church. Now there's a powerful little message at the beginning of this that will be repeated throughout this passage about what it means to follow Christ and who Christ is. It says in there that he was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Again, Peter's writing to people who feel like the world have turned their backs on them and they have been rejected by men. Now, here's the honest truth for you and I, most of us that are listening to this today, most of you that are watching, most of us that grew up in and around um, this area of the world, this part of the world in the United States. Most of us have never really felt true rejection or being ostracized or cast out because of our faith in Christ. These people had. And for them to hear that the Savior that they follow had the same experience in them, rejected by men. Jesus was the one that was looked upon and rejected, that men rejected who he was, that the religious leaders rejected who he was, that the crowds turned on him in that last week, and that when he is on the cross, there is a handful of people, when the crowds had followed, a handful stand with him. Now maybe you are someone that is filled lonely or rejected or disappointed or misplaced or can't find your fit. And in the midst of that, the comfort that we get from Jesus is that he also was rejected by men, but accepted by God. Now, there's a mixed metaphor being used here because they call him the living stone. And stones are solid and stones are Heavy and stones are substantive, but we don't think about them as alive. And yet, just as we have a living hope, we have a living stone. Jesus is solid and heavy and important and has a weight to him. But he's also alive and vibrant and real. 
This passage, by the way, is filled with Old Testament imagery of the temple. And the temple was hugely significant to the people of God in Jesus' time and before. It is the place where God dwelt. The original temple was made of unbelievable, unmatched stones. It was on a hill. It's where priests offered sacrifices in order to allow people to come near to God. The temple identified the people of God as God's people. It established their identity as the people of God and their purpose in spreading the name of God to the nations. There are a couple of implications that this passage means for us that when we recognize Jesus as the living stone, when we confess that with our heart, when we confess that with our lips, that it means that there are parts of our lives that will be changed as well. It says that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. The same kind of deal. We once were dead, but we have been made whole in Christ, made alive in Him. What I think is interesting is this passage continually talks about the the, the corporate nature of who we are, that it is important for us to be together as we're being built in order that. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean all in the same place. It means that God is building a temple worldwide out of the stones that have been made alive in Christ out of the original living stone. Now, let me just say to you that one of the things that I do think is important for us to remember is that as soon as we can safely and effectively and in the process of loving our neighbors be back together, we want to be back together because God's people were meant to be together. That we were meant to fellowship together. We were meant to share together. We were meant to be in worship together. We were meant to love together. We were meant to serve together, to worship together, to help together. We were meant to be together. I think about we have been um, studying the book of 1 Thessalonians over the last few weeks on Wednesdays at noon. And one of the things that I think about in that passage is Paul had to leave them after a short time. About three weeks he was with them and then he was gone. And he says that we were ripped away from you. And since that moment, we have longed to be with you again. And I'll tell you, church family, that I long to be with you. It was good for my soul yesterday, even in delivering some mugs around my neighborhood. To be able to see some faces and to share just some short conversations or even waving and saying hello for a moment. To stand in the yard, socially distant, having a conversation. We miss being together and we will be apart for a while. But when we can, we're going to be back together. Now here's the key. We come together not just to be here, to be in the building together. We come as part of our calling of being built into the temple of God. What's interesting is that when he talks here about the temple of God, we think about that other uh, time in Scripture when it says, you are the temple of God. And most of the time we read that, and people use that, by the way, to talk about being fit and getting fit and going to the gym and CrossFit and getting buff and making sure you're in shape. But that's not really what that passage was intended by. All that's good stuff. That passage literally says, y'all, southern version, are the temple of God. What is happening here is that we are the presence of God on this earth. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And when you look throughout Scripture, there was always a place where God lets the world, lets the earth know that He is here, that He is with them. In the garden, he literally could walk in the cool of the day. 
When he calls Moses out, he gets the people of God out. He builds a tabernacle, and that tabernacle is a place where they can go in and meet with God in a moment and know God's presence dwelt there at the Ark of the Covenant. You get to the temple. It's in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant is there, and they know God's presence is there. When Jesus comes to earth, it is through Jesus that we get the indwelling presence of God on this earth, that Jesus is God walking the earth. He is literally with him, Emmanuel, God with us. And when he leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, Scripture teaches us, and it teaches us here, as the living stones are being stacked one upon the other, one upon the other here. What it means is as we follow the living stone, we are the temple of God, the presence of God in this place. We are to carry the name of Jesus into the world. Not only does it say that, it also says that we are a holy priesthood. What that basically means is that we are the ones that stand between God and those that are not in their faith. Not in faith of Christ. We are the go-betweens. We are to represent God to them. We are to bring our spiritual sacrifices, our works, how we live, how we show ourselves, how we live our lives based on the truth of who Christ is. In other words, how we live matters. One of the beautiful things about what happens when Christ comes and dies for our sins is that He gives over some responsibilities that were intended for a few people to all followers of His. I can't help but think of that temple where when Jesus Christ died, the the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And as it's torn from the top to the bottom, it, it gives us a picture, a symbolic picture of the fact that we now have access to the Father and that all of us have that access equally. Even here, he doesn't single out a certain tribe or a certain people or a certain group that are to be the priest. He says, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a nation of priests, a holy priesthood that is to carry, made holy by the blood of Christ, called to serve him daily. So the first thing that we, that we, we build our lives on, that rock that we build the confession of our lives on is this, is that Jesus is a living stone. He is alive. And he is building a temple of God's presence to take his word to the nations. And then he gives us a second thing that we build our lives on. And this is verses 6 through 8. It says, for it stands in scripture. He's going to quote three scriptures here. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14. For it stands in scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to those who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. And so he gives us this picture of Jesus, not only as the living stone, but then he gives us another picture, another building metaphor, when he says he is the cornerstone. So he's not just the one that God has accepted. He is the foundational piece of our lives. The day and time of the New Testament, when Peter is writing, the cornerstone would have been known to be the principal stone placed. It was usually the largest, the heaviest, the most carefully positioned stone. It was the base for everything else that would be built. It established the foundation upon which they would build, and it determined the course of the building that was to come. 
Again, he quotes three Old Testament passages, and there are just a couple of things that are important for us to understand. It says that when we follow Christ, when we place our lives, when we place our foundation of our lives on Christ, first of all, it says that the one who believes in him would never be put to shame. He is telling these people that have been outcasts, that have been told that they can't participate in certain parts of life. He is saying when you follow Christ, when you build your life on him, you can be assured that you will never be put to shame, that you will never suffer that fate because Christ will defend you in that moment. And even if men reject you, you are accepted by God. And it says, so honor will come to those who believe. This cornerstone is the very foundational piece upon which we build our lives. It gives us this understanding in verse 8 that there's a choice that we must make. That it can either be something that we bring honor and glory to the Lord and thus bring honor to our own lives, or it's something we stumble over, we trip, we fall. So the question becomes, So what do you mean by establishing your life on the foundation of Christ? The answer for that, I think, comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we refer to this passage a lot because it's so foundational to the teachings of Jesus. He basically says, he compares two people, those that built their house on the rock and those who built their house on the sand. The house that was built on the rock, the simple answer there is they are the people that heard the words of Jesus. They believed them and they obeyed them. So you ask, how do we build our lives on the living stone, on the cornerstone that is Jesus? Well, we know the words of Jesus. We believe them to be true. And it shows in our lives by being obedient to what he's called. There's some of you out there today that maybe you're in a difficult place partly because you have yet to put the foundation of your life on Christ. That you have not given your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And today is the opportunity to do that, to build your life on that foundation. He says right here in verse 8, basically, there is a choice that everyone must make. Just as he asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? First Peter 2 says that we have a choice to make, whether we will build our lives on Christ or whether we will not. I would just ask you today that if you're watching, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. What's holding you back? What's preventing you from making that decision? And is that reason that you have, that thing that's holding you back, is that worth? Risking your eternal future on. I think this also, this passage speaks to those of us that are believers. That we've accepted Christ as our Savior. That there are times in our lives when it's easy to begin to depend on and trust in other things other than Him. We've talked about this pandemic has stripped away a lot of what we thought we had to have. Thought we needed. My prayer is that we've come to the end of this, or we do come to the end of this, understanding that the only thing that we truly need is Jesus. The living stone. The cornerstone. And as a result of that, and I love this part of this passage, when we understand who we are in Christ, when we understand our identity and our purpose is found in Him, 
Just as the Israelites found their identity and purpose in the presence of God being in the temple, our identity and our purpose is found when we put our lives in Christ. We embrace our identity and our purpose in Him. And it tells us what that looks like in verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. Here's what I love. He really gives us two things that we can do. We can, we can take our identity in Christ from this passage and our purpose. And here's the, the first one, the identity. The first thing that we see is that we are God's treasured possession. Man, those words, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his possession, not a people, now a people, not loved, now loved, are powerful, powerful images. Here's the reason. That last verse, especially that verse 10, is a direct allusion reference to a book in the Old Testament that talks about the magnitude of God's love for us. It is a direct, almost quote, of what happens in the book of Hosea. Do you remember the book of Hosea? Hosea the prophet is called by God to go and marry a woman of ill repute, of not a good reputation. And God says, go marry her. And he goes and marries her. And we don't know everything that happens there, but eventually she goes back into her life of sin. But in part of that process, they also have children. And do you remember what he named the children? He named the children unloved and not mine. Or unmerciful and not my people. And what we have in this passage is a reminder from God that just as we were, unloved and not a people that because of Jesus Christ we have become loved we have become people we have received mercy one of the most beautiful parts of that whole Old Testament story of Hosea is the picture that when she goes back into her life of sin God says now go buy back your wife and Hosea goes to the market where she has been caught in this life of sin and he pays for his wife to come home. She is redeemed by him. Bought with a price. We talked about this last week. A couple of weeks ago. How that God paid a price for us. That is greater than we could imagine. That he sent his son for us. That his son died for us. That the price paid for our redemption. Is more than any has ever been paid. And so as we think about this passage. It says you are a prized possession of God. You are loved by God. You are cared for by God. You are chosen by God. You are a people who have received His mercy. Of all the descriptions of the church out there, and there are a few right in here, royal priesthood, holy nation, people as possession. That's the church big C, and that's church's little C, local bodies of believers. The one that I think is most fascinating to me and most convicting because of what I know it means for us is that we are loved by God, His prized possession. That we are special in His eyes. 
That's our identity. Loved by God. There's a lot of discussion out there about who you are and your identity. One of the things that our world likes to portray is that our identity is defined by what we do or the choices we make. Talking about who we love or where we work or what side of the political aisle we're on or what our family is like or where we grew up. That our identity when they talk about that is often tied to things that are external circumstances or internal feelings. But the truth is that as God's people, our identity is first and foremost ones that are loved by God. When we didn't deserve it at all. That have been redeemed, bought back with a price by God. The second thing we see in here is not only our identity but our purpose. Look at what it says there. That you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his possession, all of those things. Why? Why? There's a so that there. The so that is the reason for that, the purpose of that. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into this marvelous life. The reason, the purpose for our lives is to proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness. We are to proclaim the goodness of God, the glory of God, the saving of God. That we are to be a people that are looking to how we can share the love of God with those around us, to those in our community, to those in our neighborhoods, to those that are all around us. That we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That our purpose in life is to worship God first and foremost, to praise His name for the glory of His name, but also for the spread of His kingdom, that others will come to know Him. One of the things that I have prayed desperately about in these days as we have walked through this pandemic together is that God's work that is happening all over the world in places that are in desperate need of him, including right here in the United States, would continue to move. That this would be a a spark of revival in people's lives, that it would allow us not just to dwell in the presence of God. I'm able to study the Bible more because my schedule's been clear. I'm able to teach more, write more, look at all that. But I don't want it to be something that it stops with me. I want it to be something that goes and flows through me to the world around me. How are you fulfilling that calling of God on your life? So that's what Peter means. As he's looking back, I can imagine as he wrote this, he was thinking back to that moment when Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, you're no longer Simon. You are now the rock. And upon the rock of your confession of me as Savior and Lord, I am going to build my church. Jesus as the living stone, rebuilding the temple through us, the cornerstone that is the foundation of everything we are. And because of that, as a church, we become a holy nation, a royal priesthood. God's own people. And as our identity is loved by God, redeemed by Him, then we move into the purpose of our life to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with all who will hear. I love that part. Back in Matthew, in Peter's confession when Jesus says, And upon this rock, I will build my church. And then he says, and against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. Won't stand up. 
the church that has placed Christ at the cornerstone, that is a living stone being built into men and women that are committed to following Christ at first priority with all that they have, that are living their lives as that nation confident in being loved by God and taking the gospel to the world. That church is unstoppable. One of the things that I believe, one of the things that I pray for, one of the things that I hope is that when we come back together out of this pandemic, that this church, this local body of believers will be stronger than it has ever been before in taking the gospel to the nations and understanding as a group that we are the temple of God, loved by him, and that we represent his presence in this world. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together.